At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to New Books in Film. I'm your host, Joel Cherney. Today, I'll be speaking with Sue Matheson, author of the book, The Westerns and War Films of John Ford, published in 2016 by Roman and Littlefield. In her book, she looks at the two genres that Ford is best known for. In my interview, she reviews what led her to the project and why Ford is still considered an important part of film history. Welcome to Sue Matheson. Hi, Sue. It's great to talk to you. Hi, Joel. It's great to talk to you, too. Now, John Ford is still well-known by film historians and people who are interested in the, uh, the films, particularly of that period. But he's also one of the things that is interesting is that he's also known, particularly during that period, that he had a, a relative freedom as a director during the studio system years. And your book covers war and Western films, his two major genres of what he worked with. But let's start with some background. Um, podcast is devoted to authors, and I always like to learn something about what leads people to specific writing projects. What are your educational and writing experiences? Oh, well, I've, I've done a, um, a number of things. I've, uh, I've worked with popular culture quite a bit and written quite a few articles in the area of popular culture. But I started off as an English lit uh, person. I got my doctorate at the University of Manitoba in 1994, and even then I, I was able to work some popular culture into uh, an English lit doctorate. I was working on counterculture texts, Hunter S. Thompson, uh, Sylvia Plath, Robert Croce's Mantissa. Uh, there were a number of texts that I was looking at, and I got very, very interested in cultural failure. And as I worked with these texts, I found myself moving more and more towards American popular culture, so Let's see, what have I done? Uh, the Western is a, a niche area for me. Um, I've written on a lot of Western film. Uh, John Ford, of course, uh, John Wayne movies. I've worked with Delmar Dave's movies as well. And I've moved into the horror genre lately. Uh, I've worked on text, um, James Bond, for example, Walt Disney, uh, Mr. Rogers. I recently did papers on Mr. Rogers. But the Western has always held a, a really big spot in my heart. When I was growing up, the Western was, a, was huge, and my father loved Westerns, and I watched an awful lot of them when I was a kid. It seems like, the, as a topic, I have to think that uh, Westerns have become more popular, I mean, have become very, are a very popular topic for writing, because you're not the first author I've talked to about Westerns, so uh, some are more general, some are more specific, but uh, it is a topic that gets some pretty regular writing, which is interesting given that nowadays there virtually are no Westerns being done, or at least the few that have been. Certainly, we don't get the re- the same number of them that we certainly did back years ago. Well, I think years ago, I mean, the Western was one of those subjects that carried a lot of cultural coding in it, uh, masculinity, American masculinity especially. A lot of the guys that went over and fought in Vietnam have been brought up 
on westerns and on John Wayne movies, and found that you know the the stories that were told in the Hollywood western really didn't reflect reality at all when you got to war. So I think a lot of the interest in the western comes right out of the revisionism that went on in the 1960s, both in the audience and and in the academy. Well, what led you to this? I mean, what led you to decide that? Uh, you were going to write a book, and and I know you've got some. You've you said you've talked a little bit about what you've written before, but I I get the impression this is probably your first full book on one topic, based on the biographical information I've got. But what made you decide that uh, John Ford was somebody that you want number one wanted to write about, and number two felt that you had some specific things you thought you could say that would uh, make it to a topic to, to write about, given that there have been writings about John Ford already? Well, I'll have to go back quite a ways, because actually it was John Wayne that led me to John Ford, even though John Ford invented John Wayne. Uh, well, oh gosh, 20 years ago, I was, I was in Brandon, in Manitoba, and my son was maybe four years old at the time, and I needed something for him to watch. And I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll have him watch a Western, because when I grew up on Westerns, they would hold my attention for a long time. And so I went down to the movie store with him, and I picked out a couple of John Wayne Westerns that I remembered as a kid, and brought them home, and I put them on, and he wasn't interested in them at all. But I kept thinking, this is violent. I don't remember this. Gosh, I don't remember that. <laughs> so I took a look at them, and I got so interested in what I was seeing. The, the subjects in the Western that I had missed as a child, but you know, I was catching as an adult, that I, I took a paper down to film and history to Kansas City that year, and it was about uh, film noir techniques, uh, film noir techniques in the Western, and in, in the John Wayne Westerns in particular, and looked at Wayne as a, a, a paternal paradox, a, a really destabilizing character, and I hadn't noticed this before. Anyway, so after I, I wrote that paper, I sent a copy of it off to uh, the Journal of Popular Culture, and Gary Hyken Stan really liked it, and uh, they published it. And I thought, well, this is something that A, I'm interested in, and B, I seem to, you know, have a have an affinity for. So I'll just keep writing. And John Wayne led me to John Ford. Now I knew that Wayne had worked in Ford westerns, and I knew that Wayne had been a persona that had been created by Ford for Marion Morrison. But I didn't know much about John Ford at all. And the more I worked on Ford's movies the more interested I became in him. The movies are beautiful. I mean, they're just incredibly gorgeous, iconic statements of, of America. And I found that Ford himself had spent a lot of time working with 20th Century Fox and Daryl Zanuck on his way up the ladder. And his relationship with Zanuck fascinated me. In the 1930s, Ford and Zanuck really were changing the landscape of American culture and fast and fashioning what has come to be known as the American experience and the American character in the 1930s coming out of the Great Depression. Now, my father grew up in the 30s and my mother grew up in the 1930s and they went through the Second World War and had always been interested in that generation, their experiences, why they came out of the war they did, how their worldview had been changed by the Second World War. And when Ford himself came back from the Second World War, his movies changed as well. That's why I got interested in writing this particular book. I became very interested in that 
transformation that happens after someone has had an experience that is so immense, so world-changing. And I think it's something that we've lost touch with um, since Vietnam, Canada uh, really hasn't been involved in war other than in a peacekeeping function. Uh, the States, of course, has had conflicts, but we've had a lot of collateral damage coming back from Afghanistan and from other places. And because of that, I thought this book would be an important book to write right now. Let's talk about John Ford in particular now, though, because I think even though, like I say, he's known particularly to, to film historians and people who are, are fans of Westerns and people who are interested in films from that period. What is unusual about John Ford to, to someone who might not know that much about him? Why are his films considered to be so unusual? I mean, they stand out. And there are so many films that were made during this period from all kinds of writers and directors. And yet there's really only a few filmmakers from this period who you who still stand out as being particularly well known and still re well remembered and Ford is one of them why is Ford so popular still gosh um Ford well I'll start with the first part of your question Ford is stands out in terms of his life that's the first thing about Ford he was an amazing guy he has all sorts of affinities that correspond with some of the great artists and writers of the 20th century. He was a first-generation immigrant in America. He came from an Irish family. He was brought up in Maine on the east coast of the country, and they say that the Western was, and the West was invented in New England, and Ford was a New Englander, and he never lost that. He was, he was always a New Englander. And he was an Irish Catholic. He had an, an, he was a traveler. He was uh, always very much interested in defending the underdog. So he, you know, it's rumored that he was a supporter of the IRA. He was very involved in American civil rights movement in the 1960s. He was an adventurer. He got involved in the Navy. He had all these different lives and different careers. And as well, he was a very, very talented artist. Ford's movie standard, I think, not only because of the ability of this director to create story that interested the audience that he was trying to reach, he also had what they called a painterly eye. He was a natural at composing a picture that was a work of art. He was able to work with the frame of the camera or the the frame that the camera creates, and within the within that territory, within that frame, he understood how to compose foreground, midground, and background. He was able to put together a picture with the camera that made perfect sense and was perfectly balanced. When you look at a Ford picture uh, from about 1934 on, you see a beautifully composed work of art every single time. He was amazing. He worked with light like Rembrandt. I, I just can't say enough about the way Ford was able to put his movies together as a work of art. So here you have a first-generation immigrant who understands the American experience, who went through the Great Depression, went through the Roaring Twenties, lived the American dream, and was also a consummate artist. 
And as a result, when he ran into a producer like Daryl Zanuck, he was able to produce what are now American icons. And I think that's why Ford grabs people's attention. It's not just the story that's being told, it's also the way the story is told. He really was in complete control of the medium that he was working with. Am I right that Ford definitely had a certain amount, much more autonomy than many of the filmmakers during the period who were working in the studio system? Did he pretty much be able to, was he very well involved in selecting what he was going to do and who he was going to work with? Well, now that's an interesting point because in the 1960s, you know, the the, the French scholars were very much into the auteur theory of, of cinema and argued that, you know, the director was the author of the piece and, you know, as an auteur would make these decisions. I wanted to cast Ford in this kind of light. And the more I looked at John Ford, the less I saw him as an auteur director. He worked his way up through the studio system and he worked his way through studios that um, assigned their directors the movies that they made. So the directors really had no choice. And Ford himself would say that when he was beginning in the 20s and into the early 30s, that the script would arrive on his doorstep in the morning and he'd be expected to start shooting that afternoon. He really had no choice. So in terms of being at auteur with the studios, you know, during the 20s and, the, and, and into the 30s, I don't think he had that much choice. When he started out, however, doing Westerns in 1917, he and Harry Carey got together. That's Harry Carey Sr. And the two of them would sit down and make up their own scripts and go out and shoot their own movies. They were two reelers. And they had a good deal of control then. But as soon as Ford moved into the studios, he lost that kind of control. Now, he made more money in the studios. His salary doubled and tripled and quadrupled as he went along. And then at 20th Century Fox, Daryl Zanuck more or less ran the show. He chose the story ideas, and he fought for them to you know, be, be produced. He'd go to the board and, and sell the ideas. And then he had a stable of directors, and Ford was one of them, and he would choose which director would, would direct you know, which film. Now, when you're working with people, um, the way Zanuck worked with them, you would automatically know that John Ford, who was a master of sentiment, um, and uh, you know, labeled an art director as well as a money director, would probably do a better job with a certain kind of a film than another, you know, another another director. So I think to some extent, as Ford and Zanuck got to know each other better, Ford was given movies that Zanuck felt suited his abilities. Now, when Ford came back from the Second World War, for example, um, Zanuck offered him My Darling Clementine because it was a Western. And the Western was one of Ford's fortes. But when Ford wanted to make Stagecoach in 1939, he couldn't get anyone to take it. Everyone thought it was an enthusiasm of John Ford's. And Ford would occasionally go out and make, you know, uh, what he called um, movies that were throwaways, movies that he wanted to make, or that he could talk the stu a studio into making with him. But, you know, again, he had to work awfully hard in order to get Stagecoach uh, on screen. Now, Stagecoach was a huge success at the time. It, it changed the whole terrain of the Western itself. But Ford, I don't think, had the kind of control that the cineasts in the 1960s would like us to think that he did. Yeah, I, I, I think that's 
that's that is probably where that idea comes from. There are a number of, you know, it's the 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 studio system was the norm, but there are a few examples. Uh, but uh, and Ford is one of those names where because you still remember it, you just pretty much assume that maybe he had a little bit more control. But as you say, part of that also probably comes from the fact that Zanuck knew not to knew what to 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 give him and what he felt he would be best at. So it's probably a combination a little bit there where uh, once somebody trusts him, trusted him and decided they, that he would be able to do well uh, with particular genres, that it probably was more likely that that's why um, he ended up doing the film so well because Zanuck was making sure he was giving him films that he felt would uh, bring out the best in him. Yeah, and Zanuck too would, you know, send Ford memos, and Ford would actually, you know, follow the memo shot for shot. If Zanuck wanted, you know, material added, or or even if material was going to be erased, there's a really apocryphal story of uh, the prisoner of Shark Island, and Ford had the uh, leading man adopt a southern accent, and he wasn't doing a very good job of it. Zanuck came by uh, the set, and it was unusual for Zanuck to visit a set, but he did. And he noticed that the southern accent sounded really phony, and he told Ford that it should be dropped. And Ford said, well, you know, if you don't want southern accent, I won't direct. And Zanuck apparently just stood there and shouted, you know, you don't threaten me, I threaten you. <laughs> I'm in charge. And the southern accent was dropped immediately, you know. So, so Ford liked his people to think that he was in charge. So he, he also fostered that kind of an image that he was the auteur, making all the decisions and fighting with the producers and the production heads. And to some extent he did. I mean, he would take, you know, scripts and whip out six pages if somebody came along and said, you know, you're, you're running behind, you've got to make up some time. And he would just destroy part of the script and say, well, we're on time now. And he'd keep on shooting without it. But at the same time, when push came to shove, his his production head, like Zanuck, really, really ran the show. One of the things that I found interesting, and this is one of the things I am seeing with a lot of the books, more recent uh, books I'm seeing on films, especially older older films and filmmakers, is that you had access to some unreleased material that you were able to use in your book. What kind of sources did you use to help you put together material? Well, I went down to the Lily. I was really lucky to get down to the Lily Library in uh, in Bloomington at the University of Indiana. And they have a, a huge John Ford collection there. And there's a number of tapes that were very useful. Dan Ford, when his father was dying, spent a lot of time interviewing uh, his, or when his grandfather was dying, spent a lot of time interviewing John Ford. And so you could actually hear the conversations. Now, the Lily had Dan Ford's transcripts of the tapes, and I, for a while that's all people were allowed to access. I was allowed to hear the tapes themselves, and when you hear the tapes themselves, what you find is that when Dan Ford was transcribing, there were some things that were being left out, because he was writing his own book, Pappy, about his grandfather, and there was some material that he just didn't need for that book. So I was able to find material hadn't been transcribed, and that when you look at the scholarship that's been done on Ford to date, hadn't uh, hadn't made it into 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 our public into the scholarly publications. So that really helped. Um, also, when I was listening to those tapes, I met John Ford. I didn't meet John Ford through another lens, 
through through a scholarly lens or through a family lens, you know, you could hear John Ford himself. You could you could hear how he was gauging his replies. You could hear tone that wouldn't come across in a transcript. And I found that absolutely fascinating. Especially when you're listening to Ford and Catherine Hepburn talk. Uh, Hepburn visited Ford before he died. And they had had a clandestine affair in 1936 that had lasted quite a while. And it seems, although it's never been really documented, that it was Hepburn who, who broke the affair off in the end. And Ford continued on with his wife, Mary. And when Hepburn came in to the bedroom, uh, Ford's bedroom, to visit with him for a few days and help Dan Ford with those tapes, it was the most amazing conversation. Uh, John Ford was flirting with Catherine Hepburn, and I just couldn't believe it. My jaw dropped. I expected them to be, you know, chatting like old friends, but I didn't expect them to be flirting. And so the dynamics that were going on between the two on the tape were so interesting. It was as if they were back in 1936, and very little had changed at times. A lot of the information uh, that you find in a conversation like that develops out of what people don't say. They begin to say something and then it stops. And you could hear how carefully Hepburn was trying to direct the conversation. And you could also hear how Ford was, um, was responding in order to in order to build a, a persona of himself, because that's what she was there for, was to help Dan Ford really understand who his grandfather was. There were some things that Ford wanted to talk about and some things that he just didn't. And occasionally he would get them to kill the tapes. And occasionally you would hear things that were, beginnings of things that were off the record. So uh, you found that kind of material. There was uh, material, John Wayne was also a, a huge uh, part of those tapes. Uh, after Ford's death, uh, Dan Ford talked to John Wayne quite a bit, and Wayne had things to say that hadn't made it into the books either. And I found that very interesting as well. There's, gosh, there must be at least 50 or 60 tapes there, and I'd love to go back and do some more work with them. That's, like I say, is where lately we've been finding a lot more information on various people that other people haven't used yet, and it's great that we're getting books and, and other kinds of material that are based on information that is not as uh, well known. Now, the book itself, you basically start with uh, by trying to be chronological. You've got a, a basic introduction to him, and but then you, you tend to write chapters that are based on individual films. Uh, there's a few that are mixed around, but most of the time it's to the original films, based on each individual film. Um, what kind of a structure did you want to, did you follow? Is it, is it mostly chronological, or did you, after you reach a point, start to uh, not skip around, but certainly pick out specific ones over the other? With Ford, you've got to be really selective because he did so many films, and his life was so varied. One of the difficult things about writing about John Ford is trying to be succinct. And the manuscript for this book was actually 150 pages longer than the one that you've got in your hands right now. And there was an awful lot of material. I began biographically because I wanted to establish um, that trying to understand John Ford in terms of his life was could only take you so far. Uh, he 
spent a lot of time trying to keep his life private. And he would tell these tall tales to amuse himself, I believe, and also to throw people away from what was really happening in his life. He said, my life is nobody's damn business but my own. And, and I think, you know, he had a right to do that. So I decided that after I'd established you know, the difficulties in trying to understand Ford's work via his life, you know, that biographical approach, it would make more sense to look at his career because the career is rock solid. Everything is documented. And even though you're working with a persona that was created by a studio and managed by a studio and then later maintained and managed by Ford himself, at least you had something that was stable in terms of an identity. And when you looked at the movies, and I think John Wayne was very, very right about this, is when you look at Ford's movies, you find that Ford uses his movies to say the things that he really wants to talk about. And Ford himself said this uh, in his interviews. So John Ford is a, um, is a person, or a persona, I guess I should say, who really has four or five separate lives all running at the same time. And so in order to skip around and to be able to try and manage the materials, um, I ended up working with the movies themselves. So the movies themselves run in a chronological order. Uh, but Ford's life as it, that underpins those movies, or in Ford's career that underpins those movies, tends to flip back and forth. That's the kind of structure that I ended up working with. Because, of course, one of, the <clears throat> one of the points you make, you've already made in the conversation, but you certainly make in the book, is how his life, the major changes in his life uh, because of World War II. Uh, of course, as you already also pointed out, he's not the only one, but uh, you can definitely see uh, what the war did for him, or did to him, and what is how it's changed. But, but the other point you make in the book, and we can talk about, is the the importance of the military, his experiences in the military, the positive parts of his experience in the military, and how it affected his filmmaking. What would you say, or what were some of the results of the more positive aspects of his military career in his films? Oh, gosh. Um, before the Second World War, Ford was uh, very, very pro-military. He hadn't joined the military in 1917. In fact, he had applied to Annapolis, but he'd been turned down because of poor eyesight. And so he wasn't going to be a Navy man. He went out to Hollywood instead. And when you look at the early naval movies that he made, they're very raw, raw. I mean, there's a lot of flag waving. There's a lot of promotion of the Navy itself. And it's, it's a very optimistic and idealistic view. Now, in the 1920s and into the 1930s, Ford, like many of the guys in his generation, saw the military as being a very solid and stable employment opportunity, especially for working class people. And so if you you needed a good job, uh, if you could, you would go into the military, and the military would take care of you. At the time of the Second World War, like many people in Hollywood and many Americans, Ford was um, had become increasingly concerned about the what had been going on in, in Europe, about the you know the approach of the Second World War, and he joined 
the Navy. He left his, his job in Hollywood and left this brilliant career behind and joined the Navy uh, well before Pearl Harbor. And although he had been working in the Naval Reserve during during his Hollywood career as well, um, he you know he hadn't really spent a lot of of time with the Naval Reserve. He would go off between movies and you know do these romantic spy missions up and down the California coast uh, for the Navy, but he hadn't spent a lot of time actually away from Hollywood. I mean, all his Navy work was done in his spare time. And so for him to suddenly throw everything up in um, 1941 and take off and, uh, and join the Navy, it just shocked his family. It even shocked himself. But he was, he was very, very interested in uh, being a Navy man. Uh, and I think this had a lot to do not only with his wife's family, which were really blue blood Easterners who had deep roots in the Navy, but it had to do with him growing up on the Maine coast. Uh, John Ford, uh, his grandson said, always had the sea in his blood. I mean, the sea was just a part of John Ford. And if you're on the East Coast, whether I think it's in Canada or in America, you're unable to completely divorce yourself from that. So even though John Ford had gone out to California and become a famous Hollywood director and an Academy Award-winning director, the sea still called him. And I don't think that the West Coast junkets that he went on in the area were quite enough. He always felt that he had, and I, maybe I shouldn't say it that way, I got the impression that he had always felt that he had failed but by not going to Annapolis and not becoming a Navy man. That had been the ideal. And when you think of him growing up in Maine, as a little boy, that would have been one of the pinnacles of a man's career, you know, to have joined the Navy and to have had that kind of stability and security. But also, it's, it's, a, it's a very romantic thing to go and do, to go to sea, um, especially for someone who's living in Portland. So I think that has a lot to do with his, his attachment to the Navy. And then after he joined the Navy, he had an amazing run uh, with the OSS, he was answerable only to Bill Donovan and to the President of the United States. So it was either Roosevelt or Eisenhower, and that was it. Basically, he was he was working much the same way as he did in Hollywood, you know, where he was answerable only to his production head. And so he was able to go places and do things that, you know, the ordinary soldier or the ordinary sailor wouldn't have been able to. And John Ford was incredibly lucky in many, many ways when it came to his his relationship with the Navy. And Dan Ford later said that he never was in the real Navy. He was in John Ford's Navy. And that was a, a whole different game. Of course, then as time went on, and, and as you pointed out, the war itself, once the war went, he went through the war, uh, then there were changes. I mean, it became less... And one of you, you, you talk a lot in the middle part of the book about how his uh, vision of the military changed uh, as the war ended, you know, towards the end, by the time the war ended, and that this definitely had effect on not only his military films, but it also would start to have effects on his westerns. What was it about the end of the, you know, the war itself that you feel made him uh, change so much? Oh, gee, um, there were 
a number of incidents throughout the war that I think really affected Ford. You could see it in Fort Apache. I mean, his first Western when he came back from the war in 1948. There's a huge critique of the military in that movie. Um, when he was at Midway, uh, he made the Battle of Midway. And when I was growing up, uh, Midway was a documentary that I and I think almost everybody else assumed was real. I mean, it was a it was a real docu it was a real documentary, you know, cinema pure. And I sat down when I was writing this book, and I thought, well, I'll do a close reading of Midway, and I'll see what he was up to in terms of his camera work. And then I started noticing that most of the footage that was presented in that particular documentary couldn't have been shot during the battle, even though it was presented as being shot during the battle. And the more I looked at it, the more I realized I was looking at a piece of propaganda that was going back to, you know, the, the factory workers and to the home front in order to boost morale. After looking at Midway, um, I took a look at Torpedo Squadron 8, which is an eight-minute documentary of a of a, uh, a squadron that, that was at the Battle of Midway, and only one guy survived. The rest of them were all shot down. And this had never been aired publicly, and I took a look at what Ford had done with that. And, you know, um, I guess I should talk a little bit about... A little bit, bit about Torpedo Squadron 8 and then swing back to Midway and then go into Ford's Westerns and, and the change that happened there. Um, as a piece of, as a, well, let's go back to Midway first. As, as a piece of um, wartime propaganda, the Battle of Midway is, is absolutely brilliant. But one thing that you'll notice when you're watching it is that, like his earlier naval films, you know, there's a lot of this uh, pro-military, pro, um, it's almost like a football team, you know, uh, they're, they're all going off to have an adventure. And when, when Ford came back uh, from the Battle of Midway, he was hailed a war hero. Um, he'd been scratched by some, uh, some flying shrapnel, um, and he came back with a, a scrape on his arm. And um, the country, or at least Los Angeles, needed a war hero, so he was proclaimed by Noelle Parsons to be, you know, the intrepid Ford. And he got his picture on the front page of the Examiner. But he he hadn't, he you know, the, the Battle of Midway was only a 25-minute incident that really had, he had only been on the island. He hadn't been out on the boats. Um, the people who were out on the boats, it, it was a two-day battle, and it was... Um, it was one of those experiences, again, where you find that there has been an awful lot of re revising of the events that happened. So that when you're at war, you know, you can't really say that, you know, you made some terrible mistakes. It would lower morale on the home front. It would lower morale in other places. And so when Ford was making his documentaries, I mean, he was placed in a position where he he knew what had really happened, and he knew what had really gone wrong, but he wasn't allowed to talk about it. Um, Torpedo Squadron 8, for example, was a good example of that, was a, was a, was a good instance of that. Um, the USS Hornet was, was carrying that particular squadron, and uh, when the planes took off on the morning, uh, on the first morning of, of the Battle of Midway, they all flew in the wrong direction except for this particular squadron. And the reason the squadron went and found the Japanese fleet was because um, Waldron, who was leading the squadron, had uh, disobeyed orders and um, 
taken off on his own. Now, if you do something like that, of course, in the theater or I mean, you're up for court martial, and you'll probably end up being shot as a result. I mean, that sort of thing just isn't tolerated. But he went off. In the meantime, the uh, the main body of planes uh, kept flying the wrong direction, and most of them either had to ditch or um, when they tried to make it back to the uh, to the carrier, or they had to refuel on the island itself, and they never saw the fleet that day. Um, squadron torpedo weight was wiped out to a man, who was then fished out of the water and taken back to the United States and made into a war hero. And so, what had been a a, a terrible mistake had turned into a media fest. It had turned into a into basically a matter of whitewashing a big military blunder. And um, Tex Gay, who had been the, uh, the survivor, um, they were even talking about making movies of his life, and they turned him into almost a Hollywood celebrity. People wanted to marry him. I mean, he was, he, was a, he was a major national figure for quite a while, and it boosted morale. But John Ford uh, knew what had happened, and the guys who had been at Midway knew what happened, but nobody was able to talk about it. So Ford came back after the Second World War, after having made Torpedo Squadron to solace the families, and after having made the Battle of Midway to boost production in the war factories and boost morale at home. And he was carrying this knowledge of what had happened during the war and, how, what would, what, what it ha- and many things that happened during the war as well. And he couldn't talk about it, but he could critique the practice of whitewashing military blunders. And you find this in Fort Apache. And Ford returns to the Custer story in his cavalry trilogy, uh, several times. And Custer, of course, is, uh, and, and Little Bighorn is one of the most glaring instances of of the military whitewashing a blunder. Uh, a blunder. <laughs> Sorry. And, um, and I think Ford was able to work the Custer angle in in order to talk about what happened during his own experiences during the Second World War. I mean, he saw a lot of action. He was in North Africa and had to step in and stop people from shooting down German pilots. He was in Normandy, and when he was on the beaches, actually, um, he suffered what appears to have been a kind of a breakdown, and he had to be shipped home. He just couldn't stop drinking at that point. And at one point in his career as well, Donovan uh, had to get him out of the way. December 7th was so controversial because there was a critique of the military uh, and the problems at Pearl Harbor during the Japanese attack in 1942. When that documentary came out, Donovan sent him by boat over to Burma to get him away from people in Washington who wanted Ford's head. And it took that boat three months to get Ford to Burma. And during that three-month period, he had no contact with with the government. He had no contact with people. He was safely put aside. And Burma was a long way from the major fronts as well. When he came back after Burma, he spent a lot of time uh, at a desk um, away from the fronts where he, where he wasn't going to make a lot of waves. So when you look at what Ford was dealing with during the war, and you look at Ford's courage, and which was a, a salient characteristic of the man, and you look at his honesty. Uh, if Ford felt strongly about something, he would he would talk about it, and you just couldn't keep it out of his work. And uh, I think that's 
probably what interests me the most about John Ford is the fact that he did the right thing during the Second World War. Um, and then after the Second World War, he did the right thing again. He talked about it. He talked about it in his movies. And he was one of the few that stood up and, and, uh, and talked about the problems with McCarthyism in the 1950s. You mentioned that a lot of that you're talking. You, you, you talk about the post-war period, and that, of course, is some of his best films that may have talked about mil- his military experiences were westerns. They weren't necessarily military films. Not that he didn't do those as well, but uh, you talk about his cavalry trilogy and the fact that uh, this was the Cold War, and as you just mentioned, uh, he was working again after the war in a time where many Hollywood people were being uh, threatened with their uh, careers and, in fact, lost their careers because of the uh, Cold War uh, blacklisting. Uh, But clearly Ford decided that he was going to continue to work, but do you feel like he was trying to make his points about the war? Was it important to him that... Rather than making films about the war that talked about some of these issues, that it was better to put them into the westerns, or is it just a matter because he did with westerns, he was just able to put these additional ideas into the films? You know, that's a really good question. I think that he was able to use the westerns to talk about what he was interested in. And, and to do his, his critique of war. I mean, the situation in the American Southwest um, after the Civil War was, it was a state of war. And so he was able to use that kind of a landscape or terrain or that kind of a, a palette in order, to, in order to be able to say what he wanted to say. When you look at his, his uh, military films after the Second World War, I mean, it's uh, Willie Comes Marching Home, for example, it's a wonderful comedy. And so he's saying in that movie what you see also in movies like Fort Apache or in She Wore a Yellow Ribbon or in The Searchers, only instead of the tragedy, right, you have the comedy in, 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 in Willie. I mean, it's a terrible mess in Willie Comes Marching Home. <laughs> the poor guy, everything happens to him. Just when, he, just when he thinks he's going to war, he has to stay home. And just when he thinks he's going to stay home, uh, he goes off to war. When he thinks he's going to be a hero, he becomes... You know, everybody's fool. Uh, he can't win. It's one of those things he's just not going to win. The irony is lovely. Whereas when you're looking at the uh, the, tra- the tragic treatment of, of what war does to people in movies like Port Apache or The Searchers, you're looking at a, a very, I think, deep understanding of the human condition. People get caught in situations where you simply have no choice. Uh, you're carried along by the events that happen, and people do the best they can, and the decisions are quite often, you know, decisions that posterity would look back at and raise an eyebrow. And 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 uh, and so I think when you're when you're working with Ford's westerns, he's doing with the western what you saw uh, people like Sam Peckinpah doing with the western in the 1960s. You end up using the western as a vehicle for subjects that you want to talk about in the present but are unable to unable to articulate. I mean, if Ford had actually been able to say the things I think that he wanted to say and that he needed to be felt, um, he would have lost his jobs, he or his job, he would have lost his companies, 
Um, he certainly couldn't talk about it during the war. He would have been court-martialed. Court um, he was dangerously skirting those issues during the war as it was. So he was, I think, very much um, still an idealist in terms of the American, you know, in, in, idealist about the America and about the American experience because a good part of that experience is the ability to critique um, the right to have freedom of speech. And that's also part of the responsibility of a good American and a good citizen is to be able to, you know, criticize the government as part of the democratic process. And Ford strongly believed in that. Well, then I have to ask the question since one of his major uh, one of the people that was very – he was very much uh, used in many of his films was John Wayne, yeah. who doesn't usually come across as being that – on that level as far as, you know, he tends, tends to come through when people talk about Wayne's personal beliefs. You would not think immediately that those two would actually get a lo- work together well. Were there – did they have issues together even though, as you said before – um, John Wayne was definitely one of uh, John Ford's biggest uh, fans, if best way to put it. Yeah, I think they did have issues. I mean, Ford was very, very cruel to Wayne. I mean, it was it was an odd relationship because although they were supposed to be very close, you know, they'd worked together for so long, and and you know, working in an industry like the film industry or on stage, you become very close to the people you work with. The Wayne said that it was a nice relationship because we never had to apologize to each other. So there was a distance between the two men. And, and as a result, you know, you could say whatever you wanted to the guy at work and yet you could still drink with him and party with him in the evenings. But I think there were issues. I mean, they were as, as, as Wayne became more of a star and eventually went off and did his own directing with the Alamo, he started to leave his mentor behind and really started to, talk more about how he resented Ford's treatment of him. Now, Ford treated almost everybody badly on set. He was a director who believed that if you keep people on edge or emotionally distraught, um, you'll get a better reaction out of them. So you'd only have to have one or two takes. I mean, you get a, a wonderful sequence or a wonderful scene with the actor, even though the actor is a nervous wreck, you've reduced him to that point. And he did this with Victor McLaughlin in The Informer. And McLaughlin won an Academy Award for his performance, but he swore he was going to quit acting and he was going to kill John Ford when the, when, when the, uh, when the acting was over, when the movie was, was in the can. Um, I think he, in terms of politics, I think that Ford and Wayne were day and night. I mean, Ford began his life as a voter, um, as a social democrat. I mean, basically, that's what he was. And there was a, a really interesting letter that I came across in the Lily, where Ford is writing to a cousin who is off fighting the Spanish Civil War. And he says, you know, I really wish I could be there. And I'm really sympathetic to your cause. Uh, but, you know, he has a grandfather, or he had a grandfather who didn't approve of of the political stance, you know, the, the, the fact that the nephew was, or that his, his grandson um, would have been supporting a, a cousin who was, um, who, was, who was interested in fighting for, for the communists, you know, an anti-Franco man. And um, the letter was never sent. 
And I think that um, Ford's, Ford was left-leaning. He, he went to uh, pickets, uh, picket lines and supported picket lines during the 1930s. And this is the reason why he and Frank Cabra got in trouble with McCarthy in the 1950s. Um, he hung out with the liberals. His rhetoric up to the Second World War was very, very liberal. And then when he came back and uh, McCarthyism started, the Red Scare was going on in Hollywood, he retrenched. And his rhetoric, his public rhetoric, became more and more right-wing. But behind the scenes, he was working as he always had with people. And so one of the chapters that I start with, one of the Ford quotes is, you know, send the commie bastard to me, I'll hire him. And Ford found ways for people to work. Um, and Ford stood up and challenged Cecil D. DeMille uh, when, you know, the Hollywood right wing was trying to take over the, the director's guild. So Ford was, I think, not playing both ends against the middle. I think he was... Um, sympathetic, a sympathetic, a sympathetic liberal who was caught in a situation where he was trying to start his own company and couldn't uh, challenge the status quo. Otherwise, the company would fail. So he was caught in that. But his leading man, the man that he had created, uh, the man who was going to, you know, be the money maker for his movies, John Wayne, um, had of course was was very very reactionary and very very right wing. And so he had a working relationship with the man, and he had a personal relationship with the man that wasn't political, it was personal. But I think there was still friction. I, 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 there was a lot of friction after the Second World War because Wayne never fought during the Second World War. He chose to design a career for himself. It became very, very successful during that period. So he he didn't he didn't go off to fight, and Ford really never forgave Wayne for that. Um, during the filming of They Were Expendable, uh, he was on Wayne's back all the time about that, and throughout the rest of Wayne's Wayne's life, he kept reminding you know John Wayne that he hadn't done the right thing. He hadn't gone off to war and fought for his country. So there was there was tension between the two men. Certainly sounds like probably. The way I would, from the way you describe and what I've known, that Ford was two things. He was pragmatic in that he knew that there were some things you had to deal with if you wanted to get what you wanted. But he also had a a, a very well-defined sense of right and wrong. And that's where it didn't matter whether you would consider you know, to be liberal or conservative. It was a matter of if he felt something was wrong, he felt he should say something. And you point out that that's one of the reasons he ran into trouble during the war itself. And I suspect it, it affected how he maybe learned how best to present what he wanted to say going forward because uh, he knew that if he uh, just came out and said these things, he might not be able to get be, get get work anymore so he had to sort of temper his his true beliefs or at least hide them or, or mask them in his film work uh, but pragmatic but also like I say a real good sense of right and wrong I think you're absolutely right and so pragmatic when he was um, when he was dying and Dan was Dan was taping him they were doing these interviews I mean Dan was he said he said to him at one point he said well why are you doing this and the grandson answered well you know there's been all these stories about you and they're wrong and you know everything should be set right and he said well it doesn't matter now and they were talking about the film business 
And he kept correcting, you know, Dan. It wasn't about art, he said. It's all about money. Ultimately, the business is all about money. He repeated that again and again and again. Very, very pragmatic. But when he was talking with Hepburn, he was, you know, it was very, very personal, and it was also, you know, he he would he was very interested in things working out well for her because you know she was in the right and somebody else was. In it. So, I think you're absolutely right. There were those two currents. He was able to negotiate both. He was never cynical, but he was, as you say, very pragmatic. So, going forward, what do you? What other projects do you have in mind, or do you have other work you're currently working on? Are you planning on doing some more with Ford, or are you going different directions now? Yeah, I, I, I've, well, there's a number of things I'm working on right now. Um, I'm going forward with Ford. Uh, Roman and Littlefield has asked me to do an encyclopedia of John Ford films, so I'm working on that, and it should be out in about a year or so. Um, I've also got a couple more monograph ideas about Ford. I'm still very interested in his military career, and I'd like to do some more work with that. I'm also very interested in Monument Valley itself and, and, and the... The work that John Ford did in Monument Valley, I'd like to do some more work with that. I was down to Monument Valley in February of this year, and for the, for the very first time, and I was so impressed with the landscape and what Ford had done with that landscape. I mean, my impression of Monument Valley came from John Ford's films, and so I had a geography that's very, very different from the geography that I encountered there. So I want to take another look at that. Um, but I'm also presently working on a children's literature book. I'm finishing up a book uh, on the Tales of Narnia, and that should be out, I'm hoping, this fall. And I'm putting together a collection of essays on Western iconography and, and archetype with Andrew Patrick Nelson. He's at the University of Montana. He's a, a film historian, and he specializes in the Western. And that should be coming out fairly soon as well. Um, McFarland is uh, is is the press for that particular book. And other than that, um, up north, I, I also do a bit of work with uh, Native American material. And there's a collection of Cree and Dene stories, oral stories, and scholarly articles on Native American storytelling that I'm working on. And that will be out with uh, John Charlton Press, and it should be out sometime in 2018 from the looks of it. So I'm, I'm pretty busy. <laughs> well, it sounds like uh, you've got all these other ideas and, and projects going on, but John Ford is always in the back of your mind. Well, the joke is, is that I said I was going to divorce John Ford after this book was out, and I could hardly wait to divorce him. You know, I wanted to get on to other things, and he stuck around. So, yeah, I, I think he's probably going to be with me for a few years anyways. Well, those 120 or so pages that were on the cutting room floor, uh, that alone would, prob would probably make you say, okay, I haven't said everything I wanted to say, or at least in print. Well, he's, he's so mercurial, and he's got, and there's, there's so much more that's, that's coming to light um, about Ford. I mean, they're beginning to release all sorts of material from the war that we couldn't get a hold of before. And I really do believe that history is in the details. And Ford had this propensity for telling wonderful stories. I mean, he was a he was an Irish storyteller of of of, of the first 
of the first ilk. And as a result, you know, you don't have to worry about the truth when you tell those stories. It's the story that's important. I'm very interested not only in the story, but in what underpins those stories as well. You know, the background. I'd, I'd like to I'd like to find out what direction he was really going in when he was telling me to look left and uh, and he was going off to the right, you know. He was a master of indirection, and, and it would be fascinating to find out what was going on uh, during the Second World War. When I mean, We had some pretty good documentation there. The um, documentaries that the OSS made uh, under Ford's direction are just being released now, too. You can get a hold of them on YouTube, or at least some of them on YouTube. And that's another thing I'd like to take a close look at, because these training films are fascinating. I think that... Um, it's a whole, whole other area that, that needs to be examined. Well, thank you for talking to me, Sue. I really enjoyed this discussion, uh, and hopefully people who may have heard of Ford or have some basic idea of Ford will take the opportunity now to look at him in more detail, especially with uh, your book and this discussion in mind, given the, uh, the different way that you've presented as as a, a way to look at him and his work, particularly with the two, with Westerns and war films. So thank you for joining me. Oh, you're very welcome. Ford was all about image management, and anybody who's interested in Ford, I think, would be interested in people like Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump these days, too. Thanks a lot. I hope you enjoyed my talk with Sue. The book should add to your understanding of the works of John Ford. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more new books in film.